0: Well, for those of us who are joining us online today, it's an exciting day for us at Access Church because we get to return to physical gathering. We actually got people in the room this morning. (laughs) How good is that? So I get to not only preach to a camera, I get to preach to some real humans for a change. So that's really, really cool. Glad you can be here. It's a glorious thing to look around and see some live people after five months of only speaking to a camera and that's not to devalue those of you that are joining us online we're so glad you're here we know that many of you are staying away because you've been advised medically to do so so we we really respect that and for those of you that are even joining outside Brisbane area we welcome you as well but it's a great thing to have uh, people back in the room so we return uh, today to public worship and we get to not only celebrate that return but the greatest return of all which is the return of Jesus Christ to set planet earth straight again and this is when all wrongs will be made utterly right this is when every sickness will be made well this is when every injustice will be turned over and bow to the righteousness of Jesus. This is when all of our personal struggles will be turned into strengths. This is when all our hurts will be completely healed in Jesus' name. And it's so exciting, the return of Christ. Now for those who have a a measure of that now, we're excited about it, but we are only part way there. We live in this space that theologians call right now, now but not yet. We have a taste of Christ and his kingdom and all of that good stuff that's ahead of us and yet it's not fulfilled yet. There's still a battle going on between light and darkness and we feel that. We feel it in our culture round about but we feel it even in our own hearts and our own lives at times. We know that there's a battle going on even with us to live fully for God and yet the day is coming when Christ returns, when that victory will be Known in fullness, and I can't wait. I can't wait. So we start uh, today in this book of First Thessalonians. We're only going to get to the first three verses of chapter one. So warning in advance. And you're probably saying, John, at that rate, we'll be there till Christmas. We probably will, but it'll be a great journey because there's never been a more appropriate book than this particular book for a time such as this. Isn't the moment cherry ripe? to be reminded that your future is so good in God and that you don't have to be caught up in the darkness and the struggle of this present moment, but you can look forward with great hope and great anticipation. I, for one, need to be reminded of that in this season. So we're going to start wide and then we're going to narrow down to 1 Thessalonians at the end of our time. We're only going to get a few minutes there, really, today, because I want to start wide with a new... Testament eschatology. Now you might say, eschat? what?" That means the study of end times. So, I want to start wide on a New Testament angle and what it says about the end times with a few big key ideas. Because while First Thessalonians might be the epicenter of New Testament theology and material on this matter of end times, the whole of the New Testament actually is loaded with such material. So, here's a few big ideas in terms of the New Testament's concept of the return of Christ. Firstly, I want you to see that the what is very certain, the when is anything but certain. That's a big, big key idea of New Testament eschatology. The what is very certain, the when, the timing of it, is very uncertain. Jesus described his return like this. No one will know the day or the hour or for that matter, the month or year. We don't have a clue when it comes to the timing of the return of Christ. We're only sure of this. It's definitely happening. It's definitely happening. And I think that this has been perfectly orchestrated by God to keep us on our toes. Let me explain. See, if we didn't know Jesus was coming... We would live ignorant, yes, but the ignorance wouldn't just be on a knowledge perspective. The ignorance is far greater than that. We would be in the dark completely in terms of hope. But Jesus didn't leave us in the dark. He told us that he's coming again. But what he didn't do is tell us the detail of the when. And what that means, therefore, is we're kept accountable. We're kept living on the edge because we don't know the day or the hour. And Christ has warned us to say, hey, when I come, don't let me find you asleep. Don't let me find you asleep at the wheel. Don't let me find you forgetful of the fact that I was coming again. In fact, Jesus renders his coming to being like a thief in the night. He might say, what on earth does that mean? How will the coming of Christ be like a thief in the night? Well, it's this. Does a thief call in advance to make an appointment before he robs your home? No, he doesn't. The whole idea is to catch you off guard. In fact, if you slept through that thief's visit, even better. The idea of a thief in the night is to catch you by surprise. And Jesus says his coming for many will come in that way. So we have no idea of the timing of the coming of Christ. We are super clear on the what, that Jesus is returning. We are completely unclear on the when, when that will happen. Early believers then because of this first key idea that I've just said, lived with a sense of urgency. The imminent return of Jesus was just on their minds non-stop. They had a spring in their step, knowing that it was right around the corner. They were not asleep on the job. They lived with a sense of urgency. It was crystal clear in their mind all the time. This could be the day. And it could easily be argued from a New Testament perspective that they thought they would personally see this return with their own eyes. It would happen in their lifetime. I'm convinced that most of the New Testament writers felt that way. It was going to happen in their lifetime. In fact, uh, some theological jargon for you is to call that apocalyptic, I can't even say it, apocalyptic expectation. It means they lived with this, this end is nigh mentality in their minds all the time. Uh, They felt that that coming was right around the corner, maybe today. It was there in their minds, front and centre, all the time. And this return is why the writer of Thessalonians and much of the New Testament, Paul, can keep pressing on, can endure whippings and hardship and travelling through deserts on foot and, and going without sleep and going without clothes at times and without food And and he, he can do all that because he's got this return of Christ forever in the forefront of his mind. He knew that this day wasn't all there is. In fact, I am tempted to exaggerate and say if the New Testament were a movie, it might be called, you know, He is Coming Soon. But that would be an exaggeration, a slight exaggeration. The headline of the New Testament, actually, if it were a movie, would be Jesus is Lord. But the subtitle would be, and he's coming back soon. You better be ready. He's coming back soon. It's that big of an idea in the New Testament. It's just always there, right on the tip of their tongues. Now, we could look back some 2,000 years on and say, well, they got it wrong. You could say that, okay, because you you look back and you go, well, they thought it was going to happen in their lifetime, and clearly it hasn't. So they were completely wrong, yeah. on the one hand yes, but on the other hand they were completely right. You see they were wrong on timing, but that doesn't seem to be a big deal in the mind of God on this particular topic anyway. It's the one detail he's withheld from us. So they were wrong on timing, but they were absolutely right in terms of living on the edge. And that expectation that they had that Christ was coming any day actually served them well. Yes, they may have been wrong on timing, but they were right on spiritual fervour. I can tell you I'd rather be right on the ladder than miss that. And that's my concern about the church of modern day. Have we lost our edge? Do we really understand that Christ could return at any time? They did. And next point, it dramatically affected their everyday lives, dramatically affected. You might say, John, are you sure dramatically affected? Are you just being overly dramatic? Well, no, I don't think it's, it's an exaggeration at all to say it dramatically affected their lives. Let me give you an example of the Apostle Paul where he's writing to the church at Corinth in chapter 7. He says this, It's better to abstain from sexual relations He goes on in that chapter to say, it's better, if you possibly can, to stay single and live like me. Now, that's pretty out there. That's pretty out there to say it's better to stay single. That's not the cultural norm that we deal with in Australia right now, that, that we would say it's better to remain unmarried. And yet he could say that. Why? He says, I wish everyone were single just like I am. But he gives permission then for those who who have a sexual appetite that they can't control to marry. But he, he stays on that space to say the ideal is the ideal scenario is that you don't. You actually don't get married. Now that's pretty out there. That's what I would call a dramatic effect on your worldview. I spoke to one of my mentors this past week who's a Chinese man but he's lived in Australia for 30 odd years now. But He was reflecting on a friend of his who does a lot of work in the underground church in China and he was talking about this guy's particular worldview. Now he gets home, this, is, this guy's a married man but because of severe persecution he only gets home to be with his family one day out of the whole year. So 364 out of the 365 days, he's away from home because of severe persecution working in the underground church in China. Now it's probably a big night when he does get home. However, however that's 364 days where he's got to curb his sexual appetite and live a celibate life for that period of time. So my friend asked him, how do you do that? How do you do that? And he said, it's just not at the forefront of my mind at all because I'm always on the run for my life and it's not something I think about. That's a pretty dramatic effect on our lives and that's mirrored in the New Testament in uh, not only sexuality but their possessions, the way they went about accumulating their wealth. They just didn't have an interest in that. Right after Jesus ascends and goes into the the clouds, Next thing the church does is sell their property and share their possessions with those in need. Now with the idea of return in mind, because as Jesus goes up, they see him go and an angel comes and says, just as you saw him go, he will return. And with that that fresh thought in their mind, possessions lost interest and appeal to them. That If life is just a vapour that's there one minute and gone the next, why would we hold tight to our possessions? It made no sense to them. So they sell off their properties and give their money away to the poor. Return has a dramatic effect on their lives. Uh, lastly here, the New Testament early saints drew ongoing encouragement from return this future dominated thinking about the coming of Jesus diminished fear and they they just had this ongoing drive that soon they would be in God's presence and it, it encouraged them it wasn't a fearful thing some of you perhaps have been raised to think about the coming of Jesus as a gotcha moment you know and you're scared of it happening because you might be caught off guard but for them it wasn't a fear driven theology it was an encouragement for them to know that Jesus was coming soon, to deliver them from their struggle and their suffering. They believed with the old hymn writer who said, it will be worth it all when we see Jesus. Life's trials will seem so small when we see Christ. One glimpse of his dear face, all trials will erase. So bravely run the race till we see Christ. Return gifted them the stability they needed to keep pressing on despite incredible amounts of persecution and hardship. And that's what we're going to see as we get into this book of Thessalonians is a church that are up to their nose in hardship and suffering, yet they can press on because of their firm belief in the return of Christ. So we zone in another level, out from the entire New Testament into the church at Thessalonica and let's think about the context of what we're going to read about for a moment. Thessalonica still stands as a significant city in Macedonia in the Roman Empire of northern Greece. It's still a popular city to this day. It still stands Just a few years back actually, National Geographic magazine acknowledged it as a a great tourist destination. It's a city renowned for festivals and events and a vibrant cultural life, so much so that it has been termed by some Greece's cultural capital. The current population sits a little over a million people, so when you think of Thessaloniki you should be thinking about Adelaide or somewhere around that mark and you would be somewhere near the ballpark. We're talking about a city of significance then, back then, but still today. Now Thessalonians is believed to be the earliest New Testament book. It's just five chapters long. It's the first material that Paul ever wrote to any church. He's just warming into authorship at this point in time. And what we're reading then is very, very, very early when it comes to the New Testament timeline. And I guess that shows why they have such an obsession on the coming of Christ. You can find the backstory to this book in Acts 17. We don't have time to go there today. But it explains there Paul's brief visit to Thessalonica and he only managed three weekends there in the temple, it says, before the persecution against him was so thick that he had to, had to leave town. He, he ran for his life, literally, he got run out of town. The locals developed such a hatred of him and his gospel message that just after three weekends in a temple, it says that he had to leave and run for his life. Now, some believe then that he was only in the city for three weeks because it says that he was only spent three well, weekends in the, in the, in the temple But I think that's disputable. He could have done some home meetings. He could have stayed longer in in private environments. But certainly his public ministry was was only three weekends. And it's probably right to think that his entire time in this city was only weeks, if not months, certainly not years. We're not talking about a long-term ministry. We're talking about something very short. So from there he ran off to Berea and then to Corinth. We think it was in Corinth where he stays about 18 months that he writes this particular letter although his time in person with them was short his love for this church ran deep he never stopped praying for them he never stopped thinking about them and he knew that they were vulnerable in terms of leadership because he had to had to leave them at a time where things were only just developing so consequently, he sends his offsider Timothy, to check on them. We pick that up in this letter. Now, here's a little side note about Timothy. He's done 600 kilometres one way to, to, to check on this church. So 1,200 kilometres backwards and forwards. Now, how did Timothy get there? I don't know. Was he on foot? horseback at best, but it was a long, long journey. And I think sometimes we make the mistake of thinking all the New Testament times, they were so exciting. There was never a dull moment. I suggest to you there was plenty of dull moments on Timothy's journey to Thessalonica and back. It would have taken days and days and days. And it's what I call IBDs, in-between days, the days that we don't read about. In our Bibles where just that faithful grind is part of what it takes to get God's work done. We don't say much about Timothy's backwards and forwards. Why? There's not much to be said I guess, only that how incredible is that faithful service to God. So back to the Thessalonian script, Timothy returns and goes, thumbs up Paul, the church is going amazingly well. You wouldn't believe how well they're going. Despite suffering, this church is going more than okay. They're flourishing. And this eases Paul's anxious mind. And make no mistake, he was anxious about them. We'll read about that in chapter three in coming weeks. Paul elaborates on that. But he is so concerned about the well-being of these baby believers. So he sends Timothy. Timothy comes back, says they're going great. And Paul goes, fantastic. And he sits down to write this letter. So with the time we've got left, let's consider these first few verses of 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 and Jesus reading these three verses. This letter is from Paul, Silas and Timothy. We are writing to the church in Thessalonica, to you who belong to God, the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. May God give you grace and peace. We always thank God for all of you and pray for you constantly. As we pray to our God and Father about you, we think of your faithful work, your loving deeds, and the enduring hope that you have because of our Lord Jesus Christ. (coughs) And may the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his holy word. There's three things I want you to notice here that are produced by return hope. If we have the the coming of Christ in clear view, here's what our life is likely to produce because of that. Faithful work, loving deeds, enduring hope. That's what we see in this church. Faithful work, loving deeds, enduring hope. Question, to what degree are those characteristics operating in your life? Faithful work, loving deeds, enduring hope. Now some of you are going to say, well, hold up, John. If you're talking about 2020, then give me a break. I mean, this is not the year. I'm not at my best, clearly society's fallen to pieces and if it's the present time you're asking about, how am I going with these three? Well, not real flash. Faithful work, loving deeds, enduring hope, like time out. That's a foul to ask at such a time as this. Unfair question. How could you expect me to be doing well? Well, next weekend we'll get into how things were for them. But I want you just to know right off the bat, this is a church in turmoil. This is a church going through the wars. This is a church facing deep suffering. In fact, I might even go further and say they've got us covered. They've got us covered. And yet these qualities are still true of them. So here's my big call. The big idea, the depth of my belief in the return of Christ is reflected by the depth of fruit that my life is producing. I'll be, these things will be real in me. If return hope is real in me. If return hope is low, these things will be low. If return hope is high, these things will be high. Faithful work, loving deeds, enduring hope. The depth of my belief in the return of Christ is reflected by me producing these things. If I live without restraint, If I have this selfish worldview that whoever dies with the most toys wins. If I take on Steve's pre-Christian ideas that he spoke to us about last week where it is live hard, die young, leave a good-looking corpse. That's what he said to us last week. If I take on the world view there's nothing to look forward to, then these things will be non-existent in my life. But on the other hand... On the other hand, if these things are at the forefront of my mind, so too will these godly qualities that this church was producing. If I believe the return of Christ is as real as income tax and if it's moulding me, if it's shaping me, if it's framing my worldview, these three qualities will flow out of me. Faithful work. Before we can talk about what being a faithful worker for God looks like, I need to clip the greatest misconception people have about approaching God and that is I'm not good enough to do anything good for God. And we, we have this faulty view that my position with God is gained through good conduct. It's a big hurdle for people who are outside the church box to look in and, and feel and see and wonder about. And it's reflected in their language when they say things like, oh, if I came into the church, the roof would fall in. What does that mean? That God is way up there and I'm way down here. And the only thing that would make me good enough to approach a holy God is that I've got to work my way up over time and it's going to take a long time because I'm starting from a long way back. But the gospel is not about having an impeccable record and dotting your I's and crossing your T's. The gospel is about me accepting the outstretched hand of God and just grabbing a hold of it. And he does the lifting. He does the changing. He does the empowering for me to live out these things. The person aware that God's smile is upon them is the person ready-made to do these things that we're reading about tonight. It's, it's not that I'm working for God's approval to try and somehow reach His standard. It's that I'm working from God's approval. And I understand He's already called me up. He's already embraced me. He's already said, you are my son, you are my daughter. And you, and you gained that position because of what Jesus has done. That worldview is transformative. I serve God then with my faithful work for altogether different motivations. Not to somehow earn my place, to climb some moral ladder, but because he's already said, I accept you, I take delight in you. You are mine. And that worldview fuels the surface, the service. It's one thing to show up for a day and serve God, but it's another thing to be faithful. And I encourage you to be Faithful in your work for God. Don't be that flash in the pan person who's there one minute and gone the next. Be faithful. This church models that for us. They also had loving deeds. This shows us that how I do what I do matters as much as what I do, yeah? It's not just enough that I do stuff for God. The way that I do it matters. Am I am I loving in the way that service? Flows through me. It's not enough that I get the job done. You know, we'd love to, for you to be involved in one of the volunteer teams here at Access. But may I respectfully say, if you're going to do that huffing and puffing, it's not a service that's pleasing to the Lord in terms of being grumpy as we go about it. We need to be loving God through our deeds. Deeds are love-based, not coming out of a place of obligation. The word here, deeds, has sentiments that relate to exhaustion. Unlike the previous word, work, which we read about, faithful work, uh, koupos, the Greek word for deeds here, is the amount of energy required to do the work. So how can we say that working for God requires these huge amounts of energy? When Jesus said, my burden is light. Well, it's all about what's going on in here as we do what we do, isn't it? Are we doing it out of a joyful place or are we doing it out of this obligation headspace? That, that never does any good for us or for anyone else. But it's as we do it out of joy and out of love for God and out of service to him that the burden is light, is light. As the music team come back for our final song, I point you towards this last one here, Enduring Hope. Enduring hope. This matters in an environment that's especially dark. The Thessalonian context was that. And yeah, our Australian one is that right now, yeah? Things seem pretty dark to me all around us. Our world seems to be in a pretty sad place. But we don't have to live underneath the circumstances. We can have this heavenly hope that transcends that. It's not just human wishful thinking, it's a it's a confident hope in the promised return of Christ. Human hope doesn't endure, human hope fizzles out. Divine confidence though carries us through the toughest of times. Would you stand for me with with prayer this morning? Sorry. Habit. It's not morning. Lord, we bring ourselves to you. We ask that you would refresh our spirits, Lord, that we would be a people that, despite the challenges, are faithful in your work, Lord God, that we would be a people that serve you with loving deeds and that we would be a people that have enduring hope going on in us. So I invite you to stretch out your hands for those who would like to and just receive that enduring hope from the Holy Spirit right now. Lord, I need a fresh touch from you today. I've I've lost some hope. I've lost sight of the end. The struggle seems more real to me than the hope right now. In this quiet moment, as you reach out to the Lord, He reaches out to you. Maybe there's some of you who are joining us online or with us in person here tonight who've never put your hope in Christ. This is the perfect time to do that. Say, Jesus, I need you. I need you to lead my life. I need you to centre me. I need you to forgive me, please and give me a fresh start because I've lost hope. I need you to come into my life in a fresh new way. If we've lost these things, faithful work, loving deeds, enduring hope, we've lost sight of return. Turn your eyes again afresh to Jesus and to His great promise. He's doing a new thing. He's coming again. He's setting things straight. We can put our hope and our confidence in Him. Thank you, Lord. Let's sing together.